Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. This morning I'm going to be preaching through uh, the beginning of the book of Philippians. I had this idea long ago, months ago, that I was going to preach through the Psalms, carry on going through the 30s, and then Lucas ruined it, and then I tried to keep it, and then Stephen like, took like the next two, and now it's like, I can't start working on the next Psalm because somebody's going to jump the gun. So I am uh, going to look at Philippians with you, and I want to begin by asking a question. Um, think back for me to high school. How many of you have memories that go that far back? How many of you don't? All right, that's fair. (laughs) Think back to high school, unless you're in high school, or unless you're not yet in high school. How many of you had uh, yearbooks that were signed and marked up by people that you don't remember anymore? That, like, if you look and be like, hey, best friends forever, stay cool and sweet and never change, and he's like, I don't know who you are. What's happened? When I look at mine, I, I don't know. I know like three of those people. I don't know. Most of you know that we're in the middle of an ongoing series here on the letter of Paul to the Romans. That letter is unique. It's different. It was unique because it was the only letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote to a church that he did not plant himself. And the reason he wrote to them is because he wanted to come and visit them and he wanted to be sent by them on into Spain to continue preaching to the the gospel to people who had never heard it. And so he wrote this great big long letter, the one we're preaching through, saying, see, I preached the gospel. This is the true gospel. This is the gospel that you believed. I know it probably better than the people who taught it to you. And so we're on the same page. We're on the same mission. And I want to come and I want to stop by Rome. And I want you to help me get on to Spain and get up into parts of Europe that have never heard the gospel before. The Apostle Paul eventually did get to Rome. It took him a long time to get there. He got there. This letter, the letter to the Philippians, was written while he was in Rome. And it's unique too. It's unlike many of his other letters. And um, we'll get into that in a minute. Philippians is known as the epistle of joy. In fact, it uses the words joy and rejoice more than any other book in the New Testament. It's only four short chapters long. We live in a culture that's a little obsessed with joy, happiness, one could say, right? And that's the sort of thing for people like us that would actually maybe make us steer clear of a book like Philippians. We got enough talk about joy and happiness. We need to stay away from that sort of thing. Whether it's a culture that's obsessed with finding happiness in relationships or in our achievements or money or possessions or ease or entertainment, or a Christian culture that is obsessed with cheap and glib sorts of joy that we put on as a veneer to cover over the brokenness and the sinfulness and the sadness of our lives. Joy is the kind of thing that's easy for us to run from. 
it's easy to think that happiness is just bad. Joy is bad. Laughter itself is bad. We want to be serious people, as if being happy and serious are somehow in opposition to each other. As if anything we do that doesn't feel like eating our vegetables can't be godly. In a culture that says, if it feels good, do it, our temptation to say is, well, if it feels good, it's bad. And if it feels bad, it's probably good. But if it is, we better not feel too good about that. (laughs) And so it's still just all about our feelings. Not in a godly way, though. And that's not biblical. It's not Christian. And this book teaches us how and why. So turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, be honest. How easy is it for your eyes to glaze over when you hear an introduction like that? Pretty easy? Just think, this sounds like a bunch of pro forma words that are really spiritual sounding and stuff, and I guess that's good. Let's get to that part that matters, that's saying something. You feel that? You feel some of the tension that I was even beginning with earlier? The tension that, you know, passages like this are difficult because they're so sweet, they're so spiritual. For being honest with each other, it's with ourselves, it's difficult to relate to that sort of thing. Sure, we know people who talk that way. You guys have all known people who talk like that, right? What do you think about them? Creepy? What? Phony. Creepy, phony. Manipulative, weird. Makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. They're fl- are they trying to flatter you, manipulate you? Are they just self-deceived? We get suspicious when people talk like that, don't we? And most of the time we're right to be suspicious, aren't we? Because most of the time the people that talk that way about participation in the gospel and the gospel this and being held in each other's hearts and love abounding more and more in Jesus and by Jesus and through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. What, it's like, what do you want? Right? But the Apostle Paul wasn't that way, so what gives? He wasn't lying. He wasn't being super spiritual. He wasn't being manipulative. What's going on here? Why is he talking this way? 
We're going to figure it out. We're going to try. And we're going to have to get into the context, do a little bit of work to relate. So let's start by asking the question, who is the Apostle Paul? Who is he? What do we know about him? Well, he's an ex-Christian killer. In Philippians 3, he tells us he was a Jewish Pharisee who persecuted the church of Christ. In the book of Acts, we read that he was there when Stephen, the first martyr, was stoned to death. We read that he went from city to city persecuting Christians and having them thrown in jail. He was a bad man. That's what he did. Until one day on the way to a city called Damascus, he met Jesus. His entire world was turned upside down and Jesus told him that he had been set apart as an apostle He was uniquely commissioned to bring the gospel to people who had never heard it before. And so he immediately began preaching the good news of Jesus in Damascus, the town that he came to, to persecute Christians. And what happened? Do you know what happened? He ended up having to be let down over the city wall in a basket because the people that he came there with were trying to kill him now. So he began to preach the gospel and he began to plant churches throughout all of the Mediterranean. And in every place he preached, he met opposition, intense opposition. He was often beaten. He was often thrown in jail. In 2 Corinthians 11, while comparing himself to imposters, he describes what being an apostle meant for him. He said, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And the Apostle Paul would eventually be beheaded for preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in Rome, which is where he's writing this letter from, while in prison. He was, he was not a glib, superficial sort of person. He's writing the letter together with Timothy. And who's he writing to? Well, he's writing, obviously, to the church at Philippi, right? But what do we know about the church at Philippi? Well, we know that it was a church that the Apostle Paul planted after he saw a vision in the night of a man from the region begging Paul to come and help. So he got in a boat and he set sail with some friends for Philippi. He was only there for a couple of days, By contrast, he was in uh, Corinth for a year and a half, preaching the gospel and establishing the church. He was in Philippi for three or four days, planting this church. And in that couple of days, they started the church with the household of a rich, God-fearing Gentile named Lydia, a demon-possessed slave girl who got them thrown into jail, 
in the household of the jailer who was about to commit suicide when God sent an earthquake and opened all the, di- all the jail doors. That's who he founded this church with. That's the core. That's the center. That's the backbone of this church in Philippi. And then they got kicked out of the city. Instant persecution. They're only there a couple of days. Now this letter was written an estimated 10 years later. It's 10 years have passed since then. Now, there were some other things we know about the church of Philippi. We know it was probably one of the best churches in the New, that were mentioned in all the New Testament. It was certainly not like the churches at Corinth or Galatia. And we know that because Paul doesn't deal with anything in this letter like he does in so many of his other letters. In most of his other letters, he's dealing with heresy, false teachers, sexual immorality, all kinds of awful things. That's not what he's doing in this letter to the church at Philippi. He warns against that sort of thing, but he's not like dealing with it being at the center of the church. This is a church that was mature and godly. We know that there likely also weren't any disputes about the Apostle Paul's authority in Philippi because this is one of the few letters that he writes where he doesn't say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus at the very top. He doesn't say that, and he doesn't go on and spend time defending his authority. We also know that this is a church that continued to suffer persecution long after the Apostle Paul left. We know that because this letter is about teaching them how to respond to the trials and sufferings that they're facing. It's a call to stand fast in the face of suffering and to rejoice in the midst of it. Now, okay. That's who wrote it. That's who he wrote it to. Why did he write it? What's the occasion? If you're a church in the first century and you get a letter from the Apostle Paul, and the New Testament's an example of the kind of letter that you got, is getting a letter from the Apostle Paul generally a good thing? It's not a good thing. It means that there's something bad going on, right? Not the case with this letter. Here's why it was written. The Apostle Paul had been in prison in Rome for a long time. It was possible that he already knew he was facing execution. He had been largely abandoned by everyone at this point. His friends, his allies, pretty much everybody except for Timothy. Now the church at Philippi heard about him being in prison. So they got some money together, they got some things together, and they sent them to Paul along with their faithful brother Epaphroditus. And At some point along the way, or when he arrived at Rome, Epaphroditus got sick, and he nearly died. So Paul is filled with gratitude. And he knows this church is going to be worried about Epaphroditus. So Paul writes them a thank you letter for the generosity. He explains what happened to Epaphroditus. He tells them he'd like them to continue supporting him financially. And that's basically it. That's the occasion but it's much more than a simple thank you letter. It's a, it's a living commentary on joy and peace in the midst of great suffering. It's a living, breathing expression of Christian joy from a man who suffered more for the name of Jesus than most of us could ever dream of suffering. And it's written to a church that likely knows more of suffering than most of the churches will ever set foot in. This is an expression of the kind of joy that only sounds phony to people who've never actually known it, 
who've never actually suffered. Most of us haven't suffered for the gospel like this. We have in our small little ways. We see the calls in scripture to suffer and our temptation is to think, well, that means we have to spend our lives pretending to have suffered so that we can feel spiritual like New Testament Christians. We have to put on airs of having suffered and then look down our noses at people who have real simple joy in the Lord. Which is just garbage. It's proud and it's self-righteous. It's not the Bible, it's not Philippians and that's exactly why we need a book like Philippians. Why we can't run from it because it's actually going to teach us about real joy. It's honest, it's raw at times but it's rich. In the midst of all the joy, the joy of knowing Jesus and walking in it in his ways. This very practical teaching on what it means to suffer as Christians, what it means to live together in unity, what it means for us as Christians to interact with the world, and all in a way that honors Jesus and brings him the greatest amount of glory possible. Now that's scratching the surface. That's an overview. That's an introduction. But this morning, I want to get a little deeper, and I want to dig deeper into the relationship between Paul and this church. I want to get further into what this book teaches us about joy and happiness. And it starts with the relationships we have in the household of God. Paul speaks in this passage of his relationship to this church in terms of partnership. The New American Standard goes cold here. It translates the Greek word koinonia as participation. And then another place translates it as partakers in. ESV and the King James do better when they use words like partnership and fellowship. These people are partners in the gospel. They have fellowship together in grace. The Apostle Paul speaks of their relationship in very intimate and affectionate terms. I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Whenever he thinks of them, his heart overflows with gratitude and he prays for them. Now, Here's a question I want to ask. Why would the partnership of the Philippian church and the gospel be so precious to Paul? Why would their fellowship with him in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel be so precious to him? Those words still seem a little cold and distant, don't they? Well, let's think back on what the Apostle Paul's life was like and who he was. We've already talked about it some, right? He was an apostle of Jesus. He was a former persecutor of the church, traveling preacher and church planner. He was constantly suffering for the name of Jesus. That much we remember, that much we've already covered. But one thing that we don't tend to remember, one thing we tend to forget is that the Apostle Paul largely did all of his work alone. He often had to stand alone. He was almost never supported wherever he went. He was nearly always abandoned, in fact. In 2 Timothy 1.15, he tells Timothy about some of the missionary journeys he's been on, and he says, quote, all who are in Asia turned away from me. Everyone in Asia is a big continent. All who are in Asia turned away from me, except for one man in his household who are not ashamed of his chains. In 2 Timothy 4.16, he writes that everyone in Troas deserted him. 
In fact, he lists a handful of people by name in his two letters to Timothy who have abandoned him. Hymenaeus gets mentioned twice, Alexander, Phygelus, Hermogenes, Philetus. This is also true of the churches that he plants, the whole churches. He spent a year and a half planting the church at Corinth, caring for them, building them up in the faith. And if you read the two letters we have in the New Testament of him writing to the Corinthians, you realize their central problem is what? They've abandoned the apostle Paul and his teachings. They've turned away to the teaching of super apostles. And so they're filled with sexual immorality and fights and drunkenness and super spiritual pride. And the same thing's true of the church of Galatia. They've abandoned the gospel. They've forsaken the teaching of the apostle Paul. They've bought into lies of false apostles who are teaching false doctrine. So Paul has to write them and he has to try to win them back. That's his life. Should we keep going? Who helped Paul plant the church at Philippi? Anybody know? Hazard a guess? Silas. Why did Paul plant the church there with Silas? He planted the church with Silas because Barnabas refused to go. Barnabas was Paul's longtime partner his best friend, the man who convinced everyone that Paul was legitimate, that he had actually repented of being a persecutor of the church. Barnabas was the man that Paul called his son of encouragement. They went on their first missionary journeys together, but Barnabas left Paul, refused to continue working with him. Why did Barnabas leave Paul? Barnabas left Paul because Paul didn't want to take Mark on their next journey. Mark was Barnabas' cousin. Why didn't Paul want to take Mark? Because Mark abandoned him. That's why. The Apostle Paul led a very lonely life. Not even his own converts, his own children in the faith, wanted much to do with him. They were ashamed of him. As soon as he was out of the picture, they didn't want to obey him. They didn't want to support him. They didn't even want to be associated with him. Not the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi wasn't ashamed of him and it wasn't ashamed of the cross. It was a church that was born in the midst of persecution and suffering. They didn't know anything else. In his letter, his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul talks about how the churches of Macedonia gave out of their poverty to support the needs of the saints. So the only churches that he allowed to support him financially. What churches were in Macedonia? What church? Philippi is in Macedonia. He was talking about this church. That's the church he was bragging about to the Corinthians. And so here... This church, with its pathetic core of Lydia the Gentile, the suicidal jailer, and the demon-possessed slave girl. What did you say? Sounds like us. (laughs) I don't want to think about that. They hear that the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome. So, of course, what do they do? They gather together what they can. They send their faithful brother Epaphroditus along to encourage the Apostle Paul. 
they almost lose Epaphroditus in the process. He almost dies on the way. Now, picture yourself as the Apostle Paul. You're sitting in a jail cell in Rome. You wanted to get to Rome so you could get on to Spain. You got to Rome and you're in prison. You're chained to Roman soldiers on either side. You've been abandoned by everyone except for Timothy. Maybe one or two other close friends. You're looking at the possibility of being executed for the gospel. Most of the churches you've risked your life to plant have turned away from you. And they've left you to die in rotten prison. No support, no encouragement. You've been abandoned by everybody, even your closest friends. The, the church at Rome, the one that you wrote this amazing, theologi- maybe the greatest theological treatise ever written to, took such care and time and patience explaining the gospel. Who knows where they're at? This is your life. The life that God has called you to. The glorious life of an apostle alone in prison. And then Epaphroditus shows up, half dead, bearing gifts and greetings from the church at Philippi because they heard that you were in chains for the gospel. They want to help. They want to stand with you. They want to support you. They want to help you bear the weight of suffering. They remember everything that you've done for them, how you showed them the way of salvation when you were, they were lost in their sins, how he wasn't afraid to deal with them truthfully about their sin, about righteousness, about judgment. Now, you can imagine the gratitude and the tenderness and the love, Right? the relationship between the Apostle Paul and this church was different. It was especially sweet. And the only way to express that was with with unfeigned, self-forgetful sincerity. The kind that would put us all to shame. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Reads a little different when you think about it, doesn't it? Do you have relationships like that? Can you say what Paul says in chapter one here? You're my partner in the gospel. I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Can you say that about anyone in your life? Or maybe more pointedly, can anyone say that about you? By comparison, most of our relationships are shallow. Based on little more than the things that we like. Remember what I said about yearbooks? 
coming, high school kids. Don't say we didn't warn you. You're going to cry at graduation and sing songs about how you'll be friends forever, and then you're not going to. Think back to college. Think about now. What drew you to your friends in college? Would you live down the hall from one another as freshmen? You're part of the same frat or sorority or whatever. You're in the music school and in the same orchestra or whatever, or got stuck doing group projects in the business school. What are the grounds for the friendships in your life? You like the same things, the same music? Are you basketball, Colts football, hunting or smoking or same kinds of video games? It's often as deep as it gets. We maintain our shallow relationships superficially, whether it's through Facebook or Snapchat or whatever. Even that sort of drives us nuts, nuts because we know we're made for deep relationships with people, for intimacy. We crave that sort of thing, so we get lonely and depressed. Since we can't get real intimacy, we try to get it vicariously through other means. We immerse ourselves in our TV shows and movies and stories and novels and video games all scratch us where we itch. We become so emotionally invested in our shows. We can't miss an episode. We laugh, we cry, we get angry, we're happy for our friends, the characters, all in the span of 40 minutes. Same thing's true of pornography. We give ourselves over to porn because we crave intimacy with the opposite sex, but what we struggle with is real intimacy with real people, the context of a real relationship. And in the church, it's rarely much different. We tend to hang out with people who are easy, easily accessible, who like the things that we like. And to a degree, that's okay. You're allowed to like the things you like. You're allowed to have those things in common with other people. You're allowed to share those things. But it's hard to go beyond that. It's hard to go deeper than that. And if we're not careful, we end up being no different in our fellowship and in our relationships with one another than anybody else in the world. In other words, we're constantly tempted to be just as shallow as the Corinthian church, just as shallow as the Galatian church, just as shallow as all of Paul's missionary companions who are bound loosely together, even if in name we're bound together because of Jesus. But when the test comes... We walk away. When the heat comes, we don't stay true. That's not how it's meant to be. This is the church of the living God, purchased by the blood of Jesus. And in Christ, God unites men and women from different ages and races and interests. He binds us together through baptism into a brotherhood that is deeper and thicker and more real than blood. We become family and he gives us work to do. And if we're going to have real deep fellowship, if we're going to have relationships that are deeper, stronger, and longer lasting than our relationships with our high school classmates or coworkers, it's going to take something much bigger to draw us together than football or music. So back to Philippians. 
what can we learn? The first thing we need to see is that there are no healthy relationships outside of the gospel. This is what binds them together. In verse 5, Paul says that the church at Philippi has been a partner with him in the gospel from the first day until now. In verse 7, he says they all have fellowship together in grace. Those aren't just spiritual things to say. They're realities. The basic problem with all our relationships is sin. It's destroyed our relationship with God and destroyed our relationships with one another. And we can follow it all the way back to the Garden of Eden and see how it destroyed God, Adam and Eve's relationship with God and their relationship with one another. But in the gospel, God reconciles us to himself by placing the punishment of our sins on Jesus. He calls us to repentance and faith. And when we come, our relationship with him is restored. There's forgiveness and healing and real relationship. He's become our father. We've become his sons. And then he immediately puts us in the context of a church. And he tells us to love each other as he has loved us. To forgive each other as we have been forgiven. And that's impossible work. But it's work that God has given us to do and it's work he's given his Holy Spirit to us for so that by faith we can do the impossible. And that's what it means to have fellowship in grace. It's God's work in and among us. God draws us to himself. God draws us to one another. God does the work. That's why the Apostle Paul thanks God and not the Philippians. He has to do it. That's the first thing that's necessary. We then need to understand that it is God who mediates in all of our relationships. In verse 8, Paul says he yearns for the church at Philippi with the affection of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That sounds weird. The affection of Christ Jesus? Well, it means that his affection is pure and earnest and steadfast and sacrificial, that Jesus taught him how to love. He loves them in Christ Jesus. And it means more than that. Because there's a reason Jesus says that if you have done it to the least of these, you've done it to him. Loving Jesus means loving one another, and loving one another is what it looks like to love Jesus. This is why John says over and over that he who loves God loves his brother, and he who loves his brother demonstrates his love for God. And he who does not love his brother shows he has no love for God. He's a liar. The truth's not in him. Christian love is ultimately about God, not about us, not about what we can get from one another. It's about God. It's about loving others as he has loved us. Why? Because I don't really like you. You don't really like me. I sin against you and you sin against me. Your personality grates against mine and mine against yours. I like baseball and you hate sports. You bear, though, the image of God. You're an adopted son of God, so that makes you my brother. And I was once God's enemy, a rebel, a sinner. And in his mercy, God loved both of us and sent his son to die for both of us and told us to go and love each other as we have been loved. And when we look at each other, we need to see Jesus. Not what we can do for each other, not what you can do for me, not what I, I can get from you. We need to love as Jesus loved. In the context of the church, we grow together, we suffer together, we serve together on the great mission of God, which is seeing the whole world return to him. We walk through the battle of life together. That was the other thing that bound 
the Apostle Paul together with the men and women of this church. It was their commitment to grow in godliness, to see the gospel go forward, to see God's kingdom advance, to see the mission accomplished. They weren't just committed to each other in a superficial sense. They were committed to one another in the midst of a fight. The fight to become holy, the fight to see the lives of other people change, to see the world change. And it looked pathetic and small and stupid. We remember what this church began as. But they trusted God. They believed him. And so they were partners in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They shared in one another's suffering. They bore one another's burdens. They encouraged and strengthened one another in godliness. They realized that when one person went down, everybody else suffered too. And it bore the fruit of thanksgiving in their lives. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you because it's such a privilege to be a part of the household of God. To have real relationships. To not have to be cool, to not have to have it together, to just love God and love people. It bore the fruit of confidence between them. Did you notice that it was their partnership in the work of the Apostle Paul that gave him the confidence to say, he's sure God's at work in them? As we labor together, as we suffer together, not only is our commitment to one another confirmed, but so is our commitment to God. We prove ourselves to one another when we stand by each other in the midst of battle. We don't share that kind of fellowship or confidence with those who aren't in the fight. It bore the fruit of service. They served one another. They served the Apostle Paul. When you're in community with God and others, your life becomes conformed to Christ. It becomes about serving. It becomes about laying your life down so that others may live. And it bore the fruit of affection. It's a humbling thing to be loved by other people. It's a humbling thing to be served by other people. It's a sweet thing when someone else lays down their life for you as Christ laid down his life for them. It's a sweet thing to labor alongside others who are as committed to the kingdom of God as you are. And that produces immense affection. Throughout scripture, we see men crying and kissing each other. And I... I don't think there's much cultural about it, really, at the end of the day. I think what we see are men who are just committed to each other and committed to the work. And it just bore that kind of fruit. It bore the fruit of prayer. The Apostle Paul can't help but pray and write down his prayer for these people. He loves them deeply. He prays for their growth and sanctification He longs for them to grow more and more in their love for one another. Do you pray for one another? I have exactly one friend left from high school. I didn't grow up with him. I had no idea who he was before high school. I didn't play ball with him until my senior year, which is when I became a Christian. I had only, uh, my only contact with him was making fun of him. We had nothing in common. Um... And even though that relationship has been strained at times, it is the one relationship that has persisted. The one person I still keep in touch with. Why? Because he was a partner in the gospel. We came to faith at the same time. God reconciled us to himself and to one another. Then we went through a whole lot of growth and suffering and fighting and sinning and repenting together. And you know what? Over the last couple of years, we've grown apart. Why? Well, he was in the ministry, and then he left the ministry, and he's dabbled in all kinds of things since then. 
And we don't, we didn't have a lot in common to begin with. We had Jesus, and the less that seems to be true, or the farther apart we grow in our convictions, the less we have. That's okay. That's normal. Because God has given me, just as he has given all of us, each other. So, why are you here? Is this a social club, a place where you can meet other people who are safe and nice and conservative and share similar interests? Because if that's all it is, you won't stay true the way that the church at Philippi stayed true. This is the church of the living God and she's holy. We want laborers here. We want to remind ourselves of that often. We want people who are committed to the vision of seeing God's kingdom expand here in Bloomington, who work together, who serve one another, who pray for one another, who are affectionate and sweet with one another, who are overwhelmed with thanksgiving because God has saved them and given them a family who can't help but share that with everyone they meet. That's what we want to be. This morning we're ordaining those kinds of laborers, men among us who have all been considered, who we all consider to be partners in the gospel. Men who are dedicated to serving the Lord and to serving you and loving and serving the people of this community. So the question is, will you stand with them? Will you honor and obey them? Will you take delight in their work? Because you'll be tempted not to. You're tempted not to already. Or maybe not, but I am. Uh, uh, Close with a story. The other day I was up in Indianapolis shopping for an engagement ring. Not for myself. I already got one of those. I was up in Indy with Ben shopping for an engagement ring because he's getting married or something like that. And while we're there, Ben decides he's going to start evangelizing the jeweler who is selling him the engagement ring. And it was completely lame. Because I kid you not, it was like his intro line was, diamonds are precious things. You take great care in explaining them to people. Diamonds are precious, kind of like souls. You have a soul, and it is precious. And I was all like, oh, Ben, we're here for an engagement ring. Let's get the ring. Let's go. And he started trying to talk to this girl about her soul. I just wanted to, like, melt away behind the jewelry counter. What a lame, stereotypical intro to the gospel. I was embarrassed. A little bit, but I stood there. I didn't say anything, but I stood there. It's like, I can't back away from this, but <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> if only Ben were more cool like me, and he would have shared the gospel in a more cool way. Like not sharing at all, <laughs> which is what I would have done. <laughs> Or maybe I was just embarrassed because I was ashamed of the gospel and of Ben's zeal. Maybe I just wanted to buy the ring and get out. I don't know if you've noticed this about Ben and I. We don't have a lot in common. Uh, It's one of the most, I think, hilarious things about friendship that has grown between us over the past year. We don't actually have a lot of frames of reference in common. Ben will, like, 
think things that are hilarious I won't get because they're related to some weird anime thing or something. And this is weird. We don't have all that much in common. What we have in common is our partnership in the gospel. That's the reason I was up there helping Ben Ringshop. It's because for the past year, we've worked hard together trying to build God's kingdom. And that's given us something. And there at that moment when all of a sudden Ben, in this relationship that's founded on our partnership in the gospel, when he got gospel I was like, ready to take a step back, right? I say all of this to my shame. Not because Ben embarrassed me, because I embarrassed myself. But not having a word to say, to encourage or affirm or support a man of God who was just doing his best to do God's work when he had every right to be consumed with the thought of, I'm buying an engagement ring for the woman I love. So think about the relationships in your life. Think about the work you do to maintain those relationships and think about why. Think about what binds you together and what tears you apart. The places you're willing to stand, the places you're tempted to run. Think about how deep it really goes. Because one day all of this is going to be over. All of the pressures of this world, the pressures of the disapproving jeweler, are going to melt away. You're going to stand before a God who's going to ask whether or not you were ashamed of him and his words. And instead of wanting to melt away behind the jewelry cabinet, if you're not careful, you'll be calling for the mountains to fall on you to hide you. Unless you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, unless your life has demonstrated some of the fruit of that. Don't be that guy. Forget yourself, love God, believe the gospel, stay true to one another. That's real fellowship and real joy. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would cut through all the super, super spiritual things, superficial things that bind us to one another and cause us to build our relationships on Christ and on the gospel and on the work that we have before us of building your kingdom in this community, in our neighborhoods, in the city, in the state, in the world. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.